Every month, we offer exciting new webinars for our community. Topics include how to use retirement accounts to buy real estate overseas, how to get a second passport in Latin America, why you should sell your stock portfolio and move your money offshore, how to buy beachfront rental properties in Brazil for less than $100,000, or apartments in Paraguay for less than $60,000. If you want to join us for free for these presentations with live Q&A, insider secrets, and exclusive opportunities with my professional network of experts, then go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for free upcoming presentations. expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thorup. Holy crap, it's here. This has taken me seven months of my life to complete, and I am super pleased how it turned out. What is Miguel talking about? It's my new book, Expat Secrets. You're going to be able to find it on Amazon right now. Let me just give you the full name of the book because I think it says a lot, okay? Expat Secrets, How to Make Giant Piles of Money, Live Overseas, and Pay Zero Taxes. Boom. I really like that. Basically, the book breaks down everything you need to know for leading an international life. This is timely information and modern, and it's a fun read. You can buy your copy right now by going to Amazon and searching Expat Secrets. This will really help support the show to grow. And if you want to be an awesome human being, what I want you to do is leave the book an honest review on Amazon. It actually makes a huge difference to new authors like me. Seriously, I mean this. Please get a copy of the book and please leave the book a review. It's just good karma. Okay, enjoy today's episode. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikkel Thorpe. This is the Expat Money Show, and today's guest is the Managing Director of Global Wealth Protection that helps clients from around the world to protect their assets and take advantage of unique investment opportunities overseas. Holding two undergraduate degrees, one in finance and international business, the second is Master's in Entrepreneurship from MIT, he is qualified to help his clients structure their businesses and their lives to minimize risk and maximize reward. He is an expert in offshore strategies for businesses and individuals. Please welcome to the show, Bobby Casey. Bobby, it's great to have you on the show. Why don't you take a couple of minutes and kind of talk us through your backstory? Sure. Yeah, no problem. Um, it, it's, it's a little funny, too. It's, it's, it's funny for me to hear this intro. Um, and and I, I know it was some of the stuff that uh, we, we had sent you to, but it's funny to hear the educational stuff in my backstory. I also went to law school in Europe too, so that's another another one. But honestly I don't really I, I really don't even like to even talk about that. Because quite frankly I'm not a huge believer in formalized education. And even though I do have quite a bit of formal education, I actually didn't even do that until my thirties, my early thirties, um, because I dropped out of school when I was nineteen. I was um, kind of, kind of raised in an entrepreneurial family. My, my father, when I was born, was partner in a construction company. When I was very small, he, he sold out and then started his own construction company. And he was always doing stuff, you know, real estate development, um, a lot of, uh, a lot of real estate business and construction business. And so by the time I was like 18 years old, I thought, why would I? Why would I go to school? And, and my dad actually made me a deal that if I went to college, that he would pay. You know, he would pay for my schooling, and he would give me. Uh, I think, if I remember correctly, it was like four hundred bucks or five hundred bucks a month as living expenses. That that you know, I would. So obviously, not enough to live on, but I had to work also. And after about a year of college, I said, you know, this is stupid. I really don't want to be in school. This is this sucks. And so I I dropped out of school when I was 19, like after one year. And my dad said, well, you know, if you drop out of school, you know, I'm not, you, you don't get your, like I said, it was either 400 bucks or 500 bucks a month. He said, you don't get, you know, I'm not going to keep 
helping with your living expenses. I said, oh, that's fine. That's, that's not the way I was going anyway. And I said, I'm going to start my own business, right? So I started a business uh, just when I was 19, which um, failed miserably. Um, I, I think I think that first year I made the enormous sum of like $7,000 um, for the whole year. Like, seriously. I mean, and I, I'm 44, so this is what, 25, 25 years ago, right? But 25 years ago, trust me, $7,000 still wasn't much money, right? <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, definitely. Right. And, um, yeah, so I remember, like, like at some points I was, like, living off credit cards and stuff, which is, you know, always good financial planning, of course, right? <laughs> um <laughs> So, yeah, that business failed horribly. I started another business that um, did even worse. Um, I thought the first one was terrible. The second one proved me wrong. That it was actually not bad. The second one was much worse. Um, and then after a couple more tries and some odds and ends stuff, you know, like having to take a couple of odds and end jobs for, you know, minor things like eating and living indoors, I had to, uh, had a, a couple of odds and end type jobs. And then I, I started another business when I was, I guess at this point I was 21. Yeah. I started another business that actually did pretty well. Um, and like it really kind of took off from the beginning. Uh, we were, we were, believe it or not, we were, and I've told this story a few times, but we, we were assembling bicycles for Walmart. Um, if you can imagine, like, most people don't even think about that as like a, an option for a business. But we're, I was assembling bicycles for Walmart, and uh, it took me about three years, and we, we broke over a million dollars in revenue, and and then we uh, I say I can't I keep saying we because obviously it was a company and we had multiple people, but I was the owner. Um, Initially, it's funny, during my first year of that business, I actually did have a business partner, and my work ethic was so ridiculous, he actually quit because he did not want to keep working as hard as me, which was hilarious. <laughs> like, and, and, you know, we're still good friends, actually, but he, like, literally came to me, like, after about a year, and we were making money. Like, we are doing pretty well, but he came to me after about a year, and he said, listen, he said, I... I can't keep doing this. Like you're, you're like I can't work as much as you are, and it's literally physically killing me. He said, "I just need to get out of this. You know, just buy me, buy me out." And I bought him out like for I don't know, a couple thousand bucks at the time. It wasn't much, but I mean, there were there were days I would literally work for, you know, I say days, but it, it, I, there were there were times I would work for like two straight days. I, I mean, straight days, like with no sleep, literally 48 hours on my feet, physically working um, for 48 straight hours. And he was like, I am literally dying. I cannot physically do this. <laughs> Jesus. So he, he was not a big fan of my work ethic at the time. <laughs> yeah, so he sold out after about a year. And then second year, second year, was about seven hundred fifty thousand in revenue, and then third year was uh, almost a million five, and then built that up over the next few years. And uh, I guess we got up to around I forgot something between seven and eight million in revenue. Eight million dollars assembling bicycles. We were doing we were doing more than that at the time. Um, I mean, we had a national contract with Sears. Um, we were more of an installation company by then. Um, but we we got up to about four and a half million dollars with with mainly Walmart as our customer. You got You got to understand. Um, an average Walmart sells about five six thousand bicycles a year per store, and so you charge them per bicycle for assembly. And there's approximately a gazillion WalMarts, right? So um, it, it's not it's not a hard business to scale. I mean. I'm not saying it's easy. Don't get me wrong. It's not an easy business to run because you're dealing with a, a lot of people, right? I mean, the, the only way to do it is physically hire people to go into stores and you're managing schedules and stuff. But 
as far as the ability to scale it, it's quite scalable because, I mean, there's thousands of Walmarts, and each Walmart sells thousands of bicycles. And then we started doing other things like the Walmart Auto Garden equipment and barbecue grills and stuff like that. But at, at the end, we were doing mainly home installation. We had contracts with Sears, um, Sports Authority, Big Sporting Goods, some other smaller regional chains. Uh, like, for example, uh, 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 pool billiard tables, basketball goals, play equipment like ping pong tables, air hockey tables, stuff like that. Fitness equipment. So, like, for example, if you go to Dick's Sporting Goods, I mean, they still do it to this day. One of our old competitors still does it, I think. But if you go to Dick's Sporting Goods today and you say, you go buy, like, a home gym or something, when you go to the register, they're going to ask you if you want that installed at your home for you. Well, years ago, that was, you know, we were one of the main people providing that service to Dick's Sporting Goods. But it's kind of an interesting story. I don't talk too much about it, but we uh, ultimately we ended up getting our ass kicked in that business because another competitor came in and um, they leveraged a technology platform that they they basically created this software platform that allowed. Um, we'll we'll keep using Big Sporting Goods as an example. They it, they they link their their software platform with Big Sporting Goods so that when somebody bought the, the product at the register, they could actually pick their scheduled time right there at the register. And they were a third party. So at the time, that was unheard of. Nobody in our business did that. And so this other company ended up kicking our ass basically because they had a better software platform, which basically killed, killed us and killed some other people out there. And... um the funny thing is, is these guys, all they really had going for them was a software platform. But they, they made such a good sales pitch, they, they picked up a lot of business they stole from us and some other guys. And, but they couldn't deliver. And at the, but by the time, like, Dick Sporting Goods and Sports Authority and some of these other, uh, retailers figured it out that, um, a lot of the guys that actually did a good service, maybe didn't have the technology platform, but actually provided the service well, you know, they were no longer in the business. So I ended up selling the business, um, but it was on the downhill slide when I sold it back in 2007 or eight or something like that. But, but to, to kind of rewind where, where you were asking me, you wanted a little bit of backstory, but also to ask how I got into what I'm doing now. So to kind of think about that, I was raised by my father who was basically his, his background was accounting and had all types of businesses and investments and stuff. So a common dinner conversation for us is how to properly structure an S-Corp or a C-Corp or an LLC for tax minimization and asset protection stuff, you know, when you're like 14, right? Because that's what all 14-year-olds want to talk about. Oh, definitely. That That's what I was thinking about when I was 14. Yeah. <laughs> but that's what I was thinking about when I was 14 because that's – you know, that's what we had as our dinner conversation. So that's kind of like my thought process as a kid. So my, my growing up, my thought was never, I'd never had the idea that I needed to go like get some corporate job and, you know, be a, as you call it, a wage slave for somebody else. But that I, I literally, even to this day, I would literally prefer to live homeless in a box behind a grocery store and go get a job. I mean, there's no way. I, would, I just wouldn't do it. I, I would hustle. I would do it. If, if my all my businesses and investments, everything died tomorrow, I would hustle and figure something out. But if I had to, I would be homeless before I would actually get a job, like an actual job that required me to participate in office hours. <laughs> Fair play. So I understand the background. I understand your father and the dinner conversations, and then you've had some success in business. But how, what was the turning point where you decided you wanted to go into the offshore markets? Because that still seems like quite a switch from the businesses you had before. It does. Yeah. So because of my dad's like business upbringing and accounting, and you know, of course, he had a uh, as as an accountant. I mean, that was his background as an accountant. A good accountant's job is to help you pay as little taxes as humanly possible, right? Without, 
without ending up in an orange jumpsuit. So that was always the thought process, like how can we do something different to minimize hazards? So this has always been my thought process. And as I got into my 20s, I had this business that was doing pretty well. I ended up investing in, in a bunch of real estate that had like some commercial, commercial properties, warehouses and offices. Ended up at, at one point I bought a restaurant when I was like 20, I don't know, 26 or 27 or something like that. And, you know, I started thinking like, you know, I'm, I'm really kind of like exposed from an asset protection standpoint. Like I'm in an, I'm in a business that is, Relatively high risk. And I say relatively high risk because in an average year when we were doing our installation services, we were literally physically in on average 50,000 homes a year like doing some type of installation service. Okay. So that exposes from the business side and I, and I, it just made me start thinking about like liability exposure. And then I looked on the personal side and I had, you know, all these commercial properties and then I had a restaurant also and i thought you know i I should probably do some things to kind of plug my asset protection holes so to speak so it was just basically an an idea i had that i thought i needed to do something about it and i did some research and i found a guy out in california who is still to this to this day somewhat of a mentor to me but i found a guy out in california who i actually hired as a consultant to help me plug my asset protection holes. And through that process, I learned a lot working with him. And I also became really fascinated with what he did for a living. And we got to be good friends. And over the, you know, over the next couple of years or so, I started thinking, and I've got some other friends because, I mean, when you're an entrepreneur, your sphere of influence tends to be other entrepreneurs. Like, you know, I, we just don't typically, we don't hang out with people with corporate jobs for the most part. I mean, yeah, absolutely. It's hard to have conversations when I talk about marketing all day and they think marketing is, you know, Coca-Cola branding uh, on the side of a billboard. And it's like, no, that's not what I'm speaking about at all. You know, so there's there's such a, a gap in between knowledge from entrepreneurs and uh, and corporate <laughs> right. So for, from your perspective, right, so the Coca-Cola bill, billboard, in a sense, I mean, it's marketing for sure, right? But it's corporate marketing. It's swaying the minds of people to drive down the road and think, man, I'm really thirsty. I'm on a coke. When you're an entrepreneur, you don't have that kind of budget to put up billboards and run ads in, you know, airplane magazines that are in the back of the seat, right? You're trying to think, okay, what is the best and what is the best and cheapest copywriter I can hire to write my landing page? Yeah. Right? <laughs> you're on, you're, it's still marketing, but it is a completely different, you know, realm of existence, let's say, when you're a small entrepreneur versus heading the marketing department of Coca-Cola with a $10 million or more budget. Right? Absolutely. So, yeah, and I started thinking, like, I really need to, kind of plug these holes and then I started thinking well I've got other friends who they should probably plug their holes too. So I started doing kind of some let's say some informal um, consulting with these guys around. So you were doing it yourself or you were passing it on to the guy that you had worked with? Um, both. So I would do some of it myself and then if I couldn't figure something out I didn't know you know exactly what to do. Um, I would talk to uh, my buddy in California, and then maybe we would work with the client together. Um, or, you know, if it was too much, I would just pass it on to him. And so that that started around 2001, I guess, or yeah, around 2001. And I just I, I was really interested in it because it, it was it was really interesting to me because. The client base was always entrepreneurs, and these are the people I like spending time with anyway. So, and basically, to to fast forward a little bit, in in my installation business, I thought, I I really became disenchanted with it around 2000, 
five or six. And I hired um, a guy to run it, basically like an operations manager to run it. And then I was kind of dealing with my other investments and kind of running this a little bit also. But my operations manager handled the day-to-day. I had a sale, VP of sales and an operations manager. And between the two of them, they kind of ran, ran the thing. And I started thinking, like, <clears throat> let's see, 2006, I would have been, what, 32? Yeah. Call it a midlife crisis at 32 or call it an awakening, whatever you want to call it. But basically, I said, in a progression of thoughts, but basically, I said to myself, I really, really fucking hate this business. (laughs) I mean, I passionately fucking hate my customers. I hate my employees. I don't even want to come to work every day. And so I had this, uh, you could call it a, uh, a friend of mine wrote a book, um, called Unscripted. He calls it the FTE, um, the fuck this event. Um, in his book, he calls it the FTE, the fuck this event. So you could call it, you, you could say that was kind of my FTE. I'm like, nah, fuck this. So that's when I started the process of selling the business, right? And in that process, I, I, basically sold the business I got out of it and I decided that I really enjoyed this one-on-one consulting with entrepreneurs and that's the path I was going to go I had some money I had um, some investments I, I wasn't like starving trying to pay rent or anything like that and so you know I, I could I could live on passive investment income and, and some money for quite quite some time at that point and I thought I'm going to do do this consulting, and when I get a client, I get a client. If I don't, I don't. Great. Well, it it kind of started the snowball into the from the asset protection thing, and it's kind of like you know Alice in Wonderland. You go down the rabbit hole. Right? You you learn one little thing, and it leads you to another another topic, and you're like, well, I really need to dig into this topic, and then you learn about this, and then you learn about this. So. Going down that rabbit hole began for me around 2001, and then it really culminated in, in like 2007 or 8 when I when I sold that business and I started doing this kind of full time. So, what part of the job do you like right now? Do you still enjoy building the structures? Do you still enjoy the consulting? Do you do more of the investment side? Well, I mean, I personally have some investments. Um, I don't work with clients on their investments per se. Um, on the consulting side, we will discuss, like, let's say, alternate investment strategies. Like, I'm not the guy you come to to talk about an asset allocation model of your stock portfolio. That's that's not that's not me. But if you come to me and say, "Hey, I'm really interested in investing in international real estate," can you give me some uh, pointers and pitfalls on what to look for and what to avoid? You know, we can discuss that because I've got a lot of international experience there. Um, you want to come to me about um, how to structure a private deal and let's let's analyze a private deal. You say, you know, you come to me and say, hey, I've got this friend, Joe, who has his private business and he needs to he needs a hundred thousand dollar investment. Let's say, should I make this investment? With him? So I can help work with you on analyzing the deal to see if it's worthwhile and how to how to structure the deal. But I'm not, like I said, I'm not the guy who says, okay, 5% in this stock and 5% in this. I just, I don't, I don't do it. Yeah, or mutual funds or any of that horse shit either, right? Yep. Yeah, I haven't had, I haven't had a government-sponsored retirement account. I, I had one in my early 20s, and then I realized it was just pissing me off, so I liquidated all of it or when I was probably 25, 27 years old. <clears throat> um, and I said, you know, this, this is this is a bunch of hardship. I don't, I don't need any part of that. Um, I, no, not to say I, I'm opposed to stocks and bonds. Don't, don't get me wrong. I, I'm in, in certain circumstances. I think right now most of the market is, is overvalued. I'm, I'm pretty excited. I'm waiting for a crash to happen so I can go back in. Yeah, I liquidated my portfolio maybe six months ago, so not quite at the top, 
but you know trying to trying to pick the exact top or the bottom of a market is pretty challenging but i got out of all my stocks and went into cash because i could see the market coming down hard and uh it looks to be going that way just just sit on it then well right now you might want to buy some bitcoin or something because bitcoin's fallen off a cliff the past week um now now might be now might be a good time to uh to pick up some bitcoin at least for short term hold um but yeah i I would i would sit on cash or you i would uh wait wait for the market to crash i made quite a bit of money in um mid 2000s after the crash in 2007-8 on on options i did really i did really really well 2008 9 and 10 on options and then I kept my portfolio going for a little while and then I liquidated it. See, I traded I traded options for 7 years and yeah, did very well over the years, but some of the stuff that's going on right now when you're trying to trade options, it just didn't make sense anymore. I would be sure I'd be on a like selling calls and things like that for Netflix and you read the balance sheet and you look at the company and it doesn't make any sense. It's a losing money company. They they publicly announce that they lose money, and suddenly the stock goes in the opposite opposite direction. Like it it starts going through the roof. It's like it's like what the fuck? Like I don't want to play this anymore. At least you know things things need to make sense a little bit. It's all manipulated. So I I'm I'm a little bit disheartened, disenfranchised by this type of thing. Just gonna take a quick break. Okay, new book is here. It's called Expat Secrets, How to Make Giant Piles of Money, Live Overseas, and Pay Zero Taxes. This book took me seven months to write and publish, and it's a culmination of some of the best stuff I've learned over my 20 years living as an expat. I cut out all the crap and tried to give you the real meat with this book. If you ever wanted to live overseas, or if you are already living overseas and you want to take things to the next level, to legally reduce your tax bill, to live a more international life, and get the best of everything planet Earth has to offer, then you must go to Amazon right now and purchase your copy of Expat Secrets. Pause the episode and go take a look. It's cool. I'll wait. Seriously, you guys are going to love this. Enjoy the book. Well, so I'll give you an example. Back back when the market crashed around 2008 or so. So I was primarily selling naked puts on, on big companies. I wasn't going for the, what, what do they call them, the FANG stocks, the Facebook. Yeah, Amazon, Google, yeah. Amazon, Google, all this. Because those, well, I actually did Google and Apple a bit because Ap- Apple was trading at a reasonable valuation. Actually, they were trading back then a really cheap valuation. But. I'll give you an example. I remember one trade I made back in 2008. Uh, Goldman Sachs was trading for about $55 a share, and I could sell a naked put with a three-month expiration for about $8, which price Goldman Sachs, I mean, my break-even, of course, if I sold a naked put, was about $47, right? Goldman Sachs, at that time, their net assets were over $100 a share net asset after all that. So basically, the market had priced Goldman Sachs as if they were already bankrupt. Now, I am not a pro-Goldman Sachs fan. I Personally, I think I think the CEO's elevator goes straight to hell. But I, I, uh, I, the, the other thing I do recognize is there's absolutely no way in hell Goldman Sachs was going out of business back in 2008, too. Right? Um, and so I was selling like put options every couple of months on Goldman Sachs, and and they were I, I never got I never got the stock hooked in me. I, like, I just made a ridiculous amount of money on the uh, on the option premiums. And the the occasional time I did have a stock put to me over those couple of years, then I would start selling covered calls against the stock until it it, it got called away from me. So then I liquidated the, I, li- I always liquidated my position every few months. Worst case scenario, I liquidated every few months of call options. So it was an interesting strategy because you take that Goldman Sachs, right? And it, it was at 55. I sold for eight bucks of, uh, a 55 put. And 
even if it got put to me at 47 bucks, I already had the eight bucks, right? So I'm at break even. And then I would turn around and start selling calls for, let's say, three, four, five bucks with a $55 strike price. Well, it didn't get called away. I sold another round of calls. Like I had, there was a few stocks I had where my cost basis was negative because of my, the option premium I collected over the years. Yeah. Option trading is really interesting to learn about and a lot of fun to actually trade. But when it goes against you, you just absolutely get kicked in the balls. And I have this this thing where, you know, it's it's the same with the cryptocurrency right now. Everyone wants to hodl. And, you know, it was the same with the options. I would have something go against me. And even though I would have rules in place, I would still hold on. And I'd be like, oh, it's going to reverse. And then I'd still hold on. And, oh, it's, it's a little bit more. I know because I know this. The moment that I uh, exercise this or the moment I um, cover this, I mean, it's going to turn around and I would have been in the green. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the problem. That's, that's the problem inside of our own heads, right? It's the, we, we fight the urge to lose money because we are, it's like a mental thing. We've already decided that this is the right trade to make. And we somehow have to mentally or emotionally defend our own position that we're right. Yeah. And that's, that's, you know, I, I can tell you, every time I lost money in options, it was because of this. The times I didn't, if I lost maybe a little bit, it's when I said, oh, shit, it went the wrong way. I liquidated it. And I will lose a little bit, but then I kind of forgot about it, and then I would go take the money and make it somewhere else. So I did really well in options for a while. For the most part, I, I was pretty clear and pretty straightforward on my rules. But like you said, sometimes you're like, no. I have got to hold on to this because it will turn around. And it yeah, so I got I got out of options. I've got out of equities because I don't like the tech sector right now. That's so heavily weighted. Right now, real estate, gold, silver, some cash, some bonds, a couple other things. But yeah, out of equities for the moment. Well, that, but see, this is what I'm saying right now. I I'm not in equities either. I don't. I'm not interested. I'm waiting for the market to crash. I mean, I literally, I look at. Yahoo Finance probably once a week, and I'm like, did it crash yet? Uh, no. All right, I'll look again next week. Like, <laughs> I don't even know what the stock market's doing right now. I have no idea if it's up, down, whatever. Um, I know it's been down for the past little bit, but it's not a crash, and I don't care until it's a crash. I'm waiting until a huge, huge traction, and then you see um, volatility index spike up over 30 or 40, and then I'll start selling. So you really go for that value investing, try to buy the stuff on the cheap. Yeah, yeah. I mean, put options, it's like it's like a way to buy a stock at a discount anyway. If you're selling puts. So let's say you think, um, what's a good example? Philip Morris. Let's say you think Philip Morris is a really good value company. Like the, the price to earnings is good. They've got good cash flow. They're paying a good dividend so on and so forth. But you think right now, the price is a little bit too high. And I'm using this as an example. I have no clue what Philip Morris price is right now. But let's say I think it's a little bit too high. So I'll just start selling naked puts against it at at a strike price that I think Philip Morris is a good price at. So if I don't, if the stock doesn't get put to me, great. I got I got the, uh, the, the premium free and clear, right? If the price, if the stock does get put to me, that's also cool because I think the, the company's at a good price at that price, right? So that's another psychological thing. Like that's that's a sound strategy for selling options. What would often happen to me though, and, and I'm sure if anyone else of my listeners is listening to this as well, is when you look at the premiums, they'd be so low for those really good stocks. And so you'd be like, oh, but this stock over here, the premiums are a lot higher. The volatility is higher and, you know, I'll, I'll take those extra premiums and you end up getting it exercised and you end up with a dog shit company that you didn't want to have in the first place. Exactly. And this is precisely why I'm waiting for the market to crash. You don't have, you don't have to make money. You don't have to make money all the time in the market. You just have to make money, you know, basically, I mean, on average, right, the market the market crashes, what, every 10 years, roughly, give or take. Yeah. So basically, the market crashes. You spend two, three, four years making money as it recovers. You sell out, and then you just 
You go buy some real estate with your cash and sit on it until <laughs> until the market crashes again. You go back in, you do this again. You just like every 10 years. What, what, what you get stuck with is when, where you get like kind of screwed is when you, you say, no, I'm going to drive every last penny out of this market and hold it until, until, you know, my, my eyeballs are bleeding. No, you don't do that. You know, when you start to feel like pull, pull your chips off the table, like let's say you started with a hundred grand. Pull your hundred grand off the table as soon as you can get it off the table. Play with house money. And then once it starts to feel, ah, you know, this doesn't seem right. You know, I really don't like it. S&P 500 trading at 22 price to earnings. This is just, this is ridiculous. I would, I would never buy. Would you buy my business if I was selling it to you for 22 times earnings? No. And 22 is going to be on the low side. Look at some of the companies out there that are like 300 times P, like PE of 300. You look. What? Or Netflix. Or Netflix where you can't even measure a price to earnings. They don't earn anything. They don't earn anything. They lose money. But let, let's, let's, like, uh shit like this drive me crazy, you know? When I started getting into the stock market, I swear, like, I, I, I'm not old by any means. And I haven't, I don't want to be like one of those people, oh, when I was a boy. But seriously, 10, 15 years ago, I just never saw anything like this before. The, these tech stocks are out of control. The the earnings ratio on them are out of control. And it just doesn't make any sense to me. My brain can't wrap around it. So I don't want to play, you know? Yep. I started trading when I was 14, by the way. Yep. My, I'm telling you that the, the influence of in, my investor father was, was pretty heavy. I remember I, I had a business law teacher in high school. Um, and she found out I was trading stocks in ninth grade. She's like, seriously? <laughs> She's like, most of the teachers in this school don't even have stock portfolios. I'm like, well, maybe that's why they're teachers. <laughs> so talk to me about some of the other investments. I know on a, uh, on a private call, you told me that you have your own mining company for cryptocurrency. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's doing great right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's 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 doing fantastic, right? My God, but let's let's look, let's look at the. I'm not gonna say what it's earning, but let's look at the market right now. It's it's insane, right? Like I'm looking right now, Bitcoin Cash, by the way, up thirty percent today, right now. Thirty. Of course, it got under two hundred too, right? So what? Uh, a year ago, Bitcoin Cash was like fourteen hundred dollars. Day it's at 216, but that's up 30% from yesterday. That's crazy. The volatility, like, because, like, going back to our previous conversation about options, you know, I thought I was used to volatility. Like, I would go out there searching for volatility, looking for, and I thought, oh, I can handle this really well. I got into crypto a couple of years ago and I was like, oh my God, like, what the hell is happening? 20%, 30% in the day, the next day, again, 30%, next day, 30%. This is unbelievable. It's crazy, right? I mean, I it, imagine imagine if Wall Street had the kind of volatility as crypto. I mean, by God, they'd have to put nets around every building, you know, in Lower Manhattan. There would be there would be like literally, you'd be stepping over, you know, dead stockbrokers <laughs> every day if if uh, Wall Street had this kind of volatility. Yeah, so I I am. In a sense, I'm a hodler on crypto just because I'm, I'm invested in a mine. Um, I, I do have long-term views. I'm long-term positive on crypto, and mining is a little bit different. I'm not. I'm not trading crypto at all. I just honestly, it, it, it's a little. It's still a little bit complicated to trade crypto. I mean, it's it's getting easier for sure. But it's not like I could go open an account with Charles Schwab and, you know, buy and sell options or futures contracts on, on, on crypto. You, you have to move money in and out. And also it's, it's risky to leave coins in an exchange. So you don't really want to, like, I don't want to go put a hundred grand on, on Coinbase and trade coins. And all of a sudden, you know, Coinbase gets hacked and I lose all my, uh, whatever, Litecoin. Right. Mm -hmm. So 
trading crypto is a little bit trickier in, in that regard. So if you're going to be a trader in crypto, I guess you're probably better off going to cash every day or every couple of days just to just to protect yourself against hacks. Because I'm sure, as you know, the the exchanges are your weak points in in, in the crypto markets. If you keep all your coin on your on your paper wallet or your hardware wallet. I mean, it's virtually impossible to get hacked, but you leave it all on... on Mount Gox? <laughs> yeah, Mount Gox, or uh, what was the big one in Japan that had the hack last year? Um, oh, I don't know. Coin something or other, I forgot. I mean, they had a like a $100 million hack last year, right? So, well, people are still trying to figure out what the fuck happened in Mount Gox. It's still a mess, yeah. I mean... It's it's still not. I mean, right now I'm trying to figure out what the fuck has happened in the past week with crypto. You know, you had you had this Bitcoin Cash split, um, this fork in Bitcoin Cash, and Craig Wright comes out and says, "Hey, if you don't if you don't agree with me, I'm going to uh, I'm going to crash the market." Well, it kind of looks like he he uh, he wasn't bluffing. That was ridiculous. I was reading some of this. It was like children like throwing insults at each other and the way that they were behaving. It, it it is. You're right. It's totally childish behavior. But honestly, it looks like he did. He wasn't bluffing. Yeah. Because I mean, from what I read, who I mean, who knows? I, I don't really know. But I haven't tracked it. But from what I read, he had about a million Bitcoin, almost a million, like nine hundred some thousand Bitcoin plus. You know, the other people kind of in the Craig Wright camp. Who knows how much they had all together? So. You know, I mean, how much Bitcoin has been mined so far? What is it, 18 million? Something like that, yeah. So if you own one out of 17 coins produced, yeah, you can kind of throw the market. There's whales, and then there's guys like that. Yeah, he's beyond whale, right? A, you know, a million coins, even at today's price of about $4,000, that's $4 billion worth of coins. So... Yeah, it looks like he kind of uh, wasn't wasn't bluffing on it, um, and I don't know. Like today is today is a pretty big bounce. Everything's up quite a lot. Now, who knows if it's just like a relief bounce, um, or it's basically the whales going back into it. I don't, I don't know. You know I, don't, I don't. I don't. I'm not a trader, so I don't really track flow of coins. I'm sure there's somebody out there that looks at it. But from a long-term perspective, I'm still very, let's say, bullish on crypto. Not not bullish in a sense that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm expecting Bitcoin to shoot back up to 20000 by January 1st or anything like that. I'm bullish in the technology, the, the blockchain technology and the future of crypto as a way of decentralized decentralization. Well, that's what makes me so upset about these guys bickering like they're in the schoolyard because it's like all right i thought we were all going to work together here we we're going to develop a new system for the world on how we are going to conduct commerce and we have this amazing technology that's been put forth and we're getting traction and then you guys show the world that we're a bunch of children still and we can't play nice you know, like, let's figure out a way to get this into more people's hands to make it easily, more easily adapted. And, like, let's work on the big problems together. Not not throw around things because you don't have enough control and you want to fork this way or that way. And it's like, I don't know. It just, it just pisses me off. D dumb, dumb people don't have a monopoly on assholeism. <laughs> There's plenty of smart assholes out there, too, right? <laughs> so, I mean... Just because these guys are smart don't mean they can't be assholes about it. You know, they're, yeah, it's like, hey, my, my sandbox is better than your sand. Oh, you don't want to play in my sandbox? Well, fuck you. Right? Get off the playground. Well, that's stupid. It is. It's completely stupid, but it is what it is, right? I mean, and this is the market we've, we've got to deal with. And who knows? Maybe one of these big whales is, is, the U.S. government or some other big government out there trying to scare the shit out of everybody into regulating the entire market. I mean, that's a that's a conspiracy theory for you right there, right? Yeah, let's not go into that one. Let's let's leave that one there. Who, who knows? I mean, I don't know. Like, I, I'm not a. I, I don't really subscribe to these conspiracy theory ideas. 
but I'm 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 very pro crypto in the sense that I think it is um, a huge tool for decentralization, and it is a a monumental step forward for humanity. In a sense, um, you know, like I think you and I chatted earlier talking about like um, libertarianism and maybe a- anarchy in it. In a sense, I mean, I would say. Philosophically, I'm more of an anarchist. I don't really believe we have a need for government. I do kind of see how for, for years there was some potentially some need for government, but I think as humanity, we have evolved out of it, or at least we're close to evolving out of the necessity of government. Ultimately, it, a lot of it has to do with technology, and I think blockchain and crypto is kind of the one of the major tools that we need to progress in order to like make this final transition out of a centralized authority. Well, let's dig into that a little bit. But before we do that, let's, for my listeners who don't understand, what are the differences between a libertarian and an anarchist? You know, it's funny. Okay, so this was, this was a friend of mine who's a pretty hardcore anarchist uh, a few years ago. He, he, he made a joke about this, you know. The joke is, what's the difference between a libertarian and an anarchist? Well, it's about seven years. Basically, once you make the transition into a libertarian mindset, it takes you about seven more years to figure out that we don't need a government at all. But libertarianism is kind of a very minimal government. Government's there just to protect essentially private property rights and um, national security. And that that's about the only role, from, from a libertarian perspective, that's about the only role a government would have to, to take. But as we know from history, I mean, there is no disputing this, but as we know from history, no government stays that small, right? Like, initially, this was kind of, you could even look at the United States and say that um, the founding fathers had libertarian ideals, and that was kind of their their view of things, is to keep a very small government that was only there for protection of private property rights and uh, protection of national security. But as we know, once you kind of, once you open that door, you can't close it. And so it just kind of grows and grows and grows and grows. So the difference between that and an anarchist, an anarchist just thinks you don't need any government at all that 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 private contracts and, you know, basically voluntary interactions can fulfill the needs of private property, private property rights. And, well, and national security kind of becomes a moot point. If there's no nation, why do you need an army to protect a nation that doesn't exist? I guess that would be kind of the difference. Okay, so dig into for me on how blockchain would solve some of these problems so that we could move away from government. Well, and it's kind of interesting, too, for the past hundred years, hundred or so, give or take years, we have been in a decentralization phase. A lot of people would dispute that, but if you if you go back and look, if just do a Google search, how many countries existed in 1900, right? It's kind of an interesting thing. There was only about a hundred countries. A hundred years ago, or 120 years ago, there was only about a hundred countries. Because there were countries that were much bigger. You think about things, well, not Soviet Union 100 years ago. You can think about now. Think about like the Soviet Union was, what, 20-some-odd countries, and now it's it's decentralized. It's broken down into a lot of much smaller countries. Russia, of course, is still gigantic. But think of all the other former Soviet republics that have split off. Um, you had uh, Yugoslavia was, was one big country. Now it's almost a dozen countries, right? I mean, Africa seems to redraw their country lines about every other year, um, and, and they tend to decentralize over the years. So we're kind of, the past hundred years or so, we've kind of been in a decentralization process because countries split up into smaller countries, and then smaller, and then smaller. Of course, most Americans don't think that's true, or at least liberty-minded, libertarian, or anarchy-minded people because they think, you know, the U.S. is, you know, got you, let's let's say, got you by the balls, right? And, and in a sense, they kind of do. 
but that doesn't support the the facts that on on the whole the planet has been decentralizing over the past hundred years or so. So blockchain, what I see is, and let's let's take a simple example like, um, <coughs> excuse me, let's take a simple example like selling a house. So right now, in order to sell a house, let's say I want to buy your house. Let, let's just let's simplify this and presume we both live in Kansas. Okay, you wanna you wanna sell me your house, I wanna buy your house. Well, right now the authority that recognizes ownership in that property is a central authority. Right, it's the mm-hmm. the uh, what would you call it in Kansas the the registered deeds office, right, or the land registry. Let's see. So you had a deed to your house in, in Kansas City, Kansas, and in order for me to buy it, that centralized authority needs to recognize that I now own it. So there has to be some legal change of ownership within that centralized authority. Things like smart contracts give us the ability to take away that centralized authority there. But like we we could create a smart smart contract. Like, let's say I want to buy your house for a thousand Ethereum, right? So that's one hundred and fifteen thousand dollars, right? So I want to buy your house. I I make an offer to you, I'll buy your house for a thousand Ethereum. You agree to it. We can create a smart contract that recognizes that deed, that deed of ownership on a decentralized authority, a smart contract within the Ethereum network. Which, you know, and of course, the Ethereum network is really a decentralized, it's, it's kind of like a decentralized, um, what do you call it? Excel spreadsheet, in a sense, right? It's kind of like a, de- it's like an Excel spreadsheet that's updated on a million computers simultaneously, right? So without that central authority to recognize, okay, Mikhail sold his house to Bobby for a thousand, uh, or a hundred and fifteen thousand dollars, we don't need some government office that has to be staffed and paid for through taxes. We can just use this piece of technology now to recognize that change of ownership. Right? I mean, that's just one small example, but you can look at that same thing like with cars. But it, going back to the, the libertarian ideals of government is there to protect uh, private property rights and national security. Well, if we don't need, if we don't really need a central authority to recognize and protect private property rights, we can actually just do it with smart contracts. Then we don't really need that that centralized authority anymore, and that strips away the power from the government, which is, you know, probably why they're fighting it so hard. Too. They're they're fighting for relevance, right? So you see it more as the contractual law that it'll be able to replace, that we'll be able to do things like that ourselves and that we won't need a government to recognize it. But what about on the currency side, not being pegged to, say, a U.S. dollar and being able to trade Bitcoin between one another? Well, yeah, I mean, money, I mean, what is what is money, really? Whether it's crypto or whether it's Bitcoin or Ethereum or... It's a medium of exchange for energy. Right. And, oh, whether any crypto or U.S. dollars or euros or yen or uh, gold coins or you know, you know, I'm trading whatever bartering system, whatever. All, all money is is a medium of exchange and a store of value. Ultimately, it needs to be um, fungible and transportable, right? So, crypto, crypto, kind of most of your crypto. Well, of course, there's like two thousand cryptocurrencies and probably. 1,900 of them are, are bullshit, but... Yeah, shit coins. <laughs> yeah, completely. I'd say maybe 100 of them are, are halfway decent. Most, most of them are complete shit. But crypto actually fulfills that need. I mean, have you ever... Of course you have, I'm sure, but for the listeners, if you've ever sent an international wire, you know how ridiculous and insane that is. Like, It's frustrating. It is... Oh, it's like... It's painful. Yeah, it's like pulling out my fingernails with pliers. Like, for the love of all that is holy, just send my fucking money to somebody else. Okay? <laughs> just make it happen. Right? And then, you know what happened to me? This happened to me like a couple of weeks ago. They wanted me to fax something in. It was like an AML or something, and they wanted me to fax it in. I was like, where the fuck am I going to get a fax machine? Like, <laughs> just, just I had to go and Google record. search like digital yeah. fax machines and like... Fact zero. Just use fact zero. It's the best one. Um, 
Well, that's actually funny you mentioned that because one of one of um this is it's ironic you mentioned that because well, one of the things I do in my business is I do a lot of company formation for clients. And in the U.S., I have a lot of um, uh, clients who need to register companies in the U.S. Because if you're uh, like uh, if you do a lot of e-commerce and stuff like that, the U.S. is a very good jurisdiction for, especially if you're a non-resident alien. If you're not an American, so if you're an NRA non-resident alien, having an e-commerce business domiciled in the U.S. is very good. So one of the things I do is register companies in the U.S. And we get, we, we apply for and file for their uh, tax ID number. Right? And this is mind-blowing to me, but the way I have to do it, or the easiest, fastest way I have to do it is fax it over to the IRS. I have to fax the fucking form to the IRS. And even better, even better is about four, five, six days later, they fax it back to me <laughs> with a handwritten tax ID number in the upper right hand corner. Amazing. I'm not kidding you. Like, I can't tell you how many times I've had a client who, you know, paid me to create a company for them and apply for their tax ID number and everything. And I send them their tax ID form back. The, the IRS form, and it comes back with a handwritten tax ID. And I can't tell you how many times I've had the client say, come on, man, is this bullshit? Like, seriously, <laughs> it's handwritten. I'm like, this is the IRS, my friend. Bobby's just taking your money. Not This thing, not official. Right, yeah. it's not official. I just, I'm screwing around with you. I just made it up. Yeah, it's unbelievable. So this is actually a funny thing to me because most of the world thinks in the U.S. the IRS is one of the most powerful, omniscient, omnipotent forces on the planet. And that, you know, they can, they have their fingers and everything and they can see every transaction you make. And yet, on the other side, in order to create a tax ID number for a German guy selling shit on Amazon, I have to fax the, fax the form in and they fax it back to me. Like, Crazy. are you serious? Like, yeah. They're, they're maybe, maybe not quite as good as we think they are. Yeah, so why, I mean, right now, a dollar is only worth a dollar because we say it is. And it's between you and I, if I pay you a dollar for something, it's only worth, the that valuation is only, you and I have only determined between the two of us it's worth a dollar because you think, let's say I'm buying a book from you for a dollar. You have made a determination on your side that that book is worth a dollar. I've made a determination on my side that your book is worth my dollar. Boom, we can exchange, right? That's that's how it is with any currency. So there's nothing to prevent Bitcoin from becoming the, the, the world's reserve currency in, in that sense, right? In that sense. But okay, but what about in the practical sense? What about the governments? I don't think that they're going to want... Uh, the USD to be replaced. This is something that they're able to control so strongly. They can turn on the printing press whenever they want. With the mining, with the Bitcoin, it's quite a different story. Yeah, and this is this is the this is a lot of the pushback we get too, right? You know, and and governments want to regulate and control it. And um, a friend of mine posted all, all in the name of our safety, mind yeah, you, of, of course. course. All in the name of our safety, right? To protect us from the the evil evil speculators. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, you're you're hundred percent right. I mean it's all done in the name of protecting us from you know evildoers. And, and and there's gonna be some pushback. This is not gonna be easy, right? There's, I mean no no major transition ever 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 goes smoothly, right? It'll take time. And this is probably well not probably in our lifetimes by far, this is going to be the hardest transition. No, no question about it. Right, and maybe, maybe even in the past couple hundred years, this is probably going to be the biggest and the hardest transition for society to make, but it, a worthwhile one to make. Well, and this just ties back into what I was saying before, because I really do want to see something like this happen. I want to be able to take back control. It's something that I stand for very firmly. And that's what makes me so mad when these big guys who have influence in the market are behaving like little school children. Because I I feel like we have important work here to do. 
and and they keep screwing around. I think you're not doing justice to little school children. I think they're much more pragmatic about things. These guys are just assholes. <laughs> <laughs> fair play, fair play. I mean, this 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 battle, this Bitcoin Cash battle, it's it's insane. It's insane to witness, but it it's but this is also part of this painful change we are going to have to go through until until the leaders in the crypto war emerge and they will until they emerge there's always going to be a battle right i mean you could look at go go back to 1913 when the federal reserve was created that that was the culmination of winning a war right that's what it was and for a hundred years banks issued their own currency right if you if you look at the history of money and you go back and study the history of money up until the federal reserve existed basically every bank issued its own currency and, that, and i don't really i can't remember the names of all the banks back then so let's pretend like bank of america and wells fargo were two banks back then right and at the time, Bank of America printed its own money. So you'd have a Bank of America $1 bill, a Bank of America 50 a Bank of America 100 And they did audits, and they were gold-backed currency. They had, it was an asset-backed currency. And so the idea was they would do audits to verify that they had this much outstanding paper, and it was all backed by, um, you know, backed by their gold. And if they had, if they got more gold deposits, they could print more money. If people made withdrawals of gold, they had to burn more money, right? <clears throat> and so people had trust in that type of system that I could trade my Bank of America $100 bill for a Wells Fargo $100 bill, and the banks had that trust. But this was during a centralization phase, right, where governments were starting to grow and get bigger and bigger, and especially in the U.S., became more and more powerful, and they did not like the idea of decentralized money, right? Yeah, you know, go back, you, maybe you've read it, it's a creature from Jekyll Island talks about the creation of the Federal Reserve. And so basically all these kind of, uh, you could call them the crony capitalists, right? The, the <clears throat> titans of industry at that point decided they wanted to, they wanted to get a hold of it. They wanted to control this whole money thing and instead of letting all the banks have control and that was that was a that was a war that was won because the government grew to, to be big enough to win a war right a war for money we've only had centralized money which if you want to call it that we've only had centralized centrally controlled money for a hundred years in all of human history this is why i think it's so funny with with like people in general, when you start talking about cryptocurrency or or anything else related to this topic, but people say, "Oh, well, we can't have anything different because the U.S. dollar is the reserve currency, you know, and we have euros in Europe and yen in Japan and so on and so forth. We can't it can't be any different than that." Well, humans have existed on this planet that we know of at least a couple of million years, and only a hundred of them have we have we actually had. A central currency, centralized currency. Yeah, it really puts things in perspective. If you the larger time frame. Yeah, and, and you could you could actually say the same thing for anarchy too. This is my favorite argument. People say, you know, oh, but anarchy could never work. It's never worked in history. Well, I beg to differ. It's actually we had anarchy for about ninety nine percent of humanity, right? Um, only the last one percent of humanity have we had government. Yeah, so only in the in the past one percent of human history have we actually had a government with centralized authority. So, you know, but humans are myopic, right? We don't really think beyond our own lifespans. We don't think um, outside of our little box that we live in. So it, it's hard to hard to kind of hard to kind of think about things in a longer term view. You know, people say, "Oh, well, you, you can't, you can't exist without government." Well, you know, ninety-nine percent of humanity. We think not only did we manage to do it, but we also evolved into what we are now. So, it is. It, have we improved because of government, or I don't know? Well, I think that is a perfect place to finish our interview. Leave that question to the audience, Bobby. 
if people want to get a hold of you, if they want to learn more about what you do, where can we send them? Uh, website, globalwealthprotection.com, or you can shoot us an email at uh, info at globalwealthprotection.com. Awesome. Really fascinating conversation today, Bobby. Thank you very much for your time, and I'll talk to you later, okay? Nice chat, you. Take care. Okay, I want to read you the reviews from the back of the book that some massively famous people in the international living space have wrote for me. See if you recognize some of these names, okay? So Gregor Gregerson says, In Expat Secrets, Mikkel elegantly describes the many benefits that accrue to those that choose their country of residence and provides practical and timely tips and examples for doing so. This book is a game changer. Leif Simon says, Having lived and worked overseas for more than a quarter century myself, I've seen expats make every mistake under the sun. Save yourself time and energy and learn from someone who has actually done it. Expat Secrets is the book to get you started in your international journey. Edmund John says, Having incorporated hundreds of companies from my clients over the last seven years, this book is very helpful for those that are starting out. And Michael Cobb says, a huge thanks to Mikkel for clearly written, concise description of the international experience as lived by a true globetrotting pioneer. Especially refreshing is the chapter on the benefits of raising kids overseas. As the father of two third culture kids, I can personally assure you that no education expands the mind more than growing up overseas. And my good friend David McKeegan wrote the foreword to this book. But I will let you read that yourself when you go to Amazon today and you purchase your copy of Expat Secrets. Thanks, guys. This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels. I have managed to secure exclusive rights to a block of villas in one of the hottest up-and-coming regions in my current home country, Panama. Join me Saturday, May 4th at 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for our special presentation called Investors Workshop, capitalizing on the globally recognized resort brand coming to Panama. We will discuss how the tourism landscape in this region will change rapidly upon the public announcement of this project and how I have secured the rights for my clients to capitalize on this opportunity before anyone else. Thanks to my connections in the region, I have negotiated pricing that front runs everyone else. Think early, early bird pricing. From gourmet restaurants to vibrant clubs, poolside activities, and even live bands, this resort is going to pump some serious life into the region. But this isn't what excites me or what should excite you either. The exciting part is that these world-class amenities and top brand will attract tens of thousands of tourists. Tourists who will fork over top dollar to stay at our investment properties. Register free at expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for this free real estate workshop. See you on May 4th at 10 a.m. Central Time. That's 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinar.